the table tells the story. From the very beginning of creation, meals and, and eating have been far more than opportunities to fill our bellies and provide nourishment to our bodies. The dinner table is rich with symbolism and imagery. It doesn't matter what culture you're from or what era you live in, the tables, they speak, they tell stories. They're filled with metaphors. They're filled with, with pictures that come alive with stories. They're filled with unwritten rules like, well, no hats at the table. Tables, they tell stories. This is our family's dining room table. This is where we slow down a little bit from the busy pace of life and take time to share a meal together. This, this table has seen and heard stories. It's heard laughter. It's, it's heard tears and more than one argument. <laughs> Even this individual table has a story. It was given to us by a couple from our church, Brad and, and Cindy. And I love Brad's story about how he met Jesus. His family had prayed for him for years. He wanted nothing to do with their faith. Uh, one day, uh, a relative of his passed away and they had, the family attended the funeral and it was an awful overcast day and, and just rainy and, and, and miserable. Well, on their way to the, the cemetery for the graveside service, uh, Brad found himself uh, just wishing that this relative could have one last moment of sunshine. And he prayed silently to himself without telling his family anything. He said, God, if you could give this loved one just one more ray of sunshine, I'll go with my family to church tomorrow. And he said it was unbelievable. At that very moment, a little hole in the clouds broke through and a ray of sunshine came down and fell upon the hearse that was in front of them. He didn't tell his family anything about his contract with God, but the next morning I met them at church. And that morning, through the proclamation of God's word, God stirred his heart and he met Jesus. We've had a chance to get to know Brad and Cindy and one of their gifts to us was this table. This table reminds me of the power of God's story to change lives. It's been pointed out that the first words that God speaks to human beings, their first command is to eat freely. And that his last command in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, is the command, drink freely. Is it possible that something so ordinary and commonplace, like eating and drinking at the dinner table, can be important to God? I think so. And even more than our own individual stories and, and events and, and, and important celebrations, the, the table tells a larger, grander narrative. We're gonna take a few moments and explore how the table can show the gospel to be beautiful and good and true in our culture. And how the story of the table, the grand narrative of what God is doing in this world and inviting us to his table can be meaningful and powerfully impact the lives 
of those around us. One way the table tells the story is through family. This is our family at the dinner table. My wife, Felisa, and our four sons, Caleb, Jaden, Nico, and Owen. They each have their own story. My wife is a surfer girl from San Diego. To this day, every time she visits the ocean, she beholds it with childlike wonder, as if seeing it for the first time. She has a gigantic heart and is always on the lookout for someone to bless. Caleb loves to golf, tie flies, and chase trout on the Asabo River. Jaden loves to explore new ideas, bass fish with friends, and is currently saving for his first car. <laughs> Nico loves everything. I mean everything, from music to reading to whatever his big brothers are into. But most of all, Nico loves people. Owen is rarely without a smile and spends most of his time putting them on our faces as well. He loves mischievously needling his brothers and of course Pokemon. <laughs> These are the individuals and the stories who come to our dinner table. You see, while the table tells a larger story, it's not only about the story that the table tells, it's about the people who bring their stories to the table. Telling their story and being invited into the story, God's story. Len Sweet has written, the story of Christianity didn't take shape behind pulpits or on altars or in books. No, the story of Christianity takes shape around tables. As people face one another as equals, telling stories, sharing memories, enjoying food with one another. We've worked hard to make family dinners a priority, but in our culture, family dinner time has taken a hit. Over the past three decades, family time at the dinner table and family conversation in general has declined by more than 30%. 60 years ago, the average dinner time was 90 minutes. Today, it's 12. It's interesting that the mental health needs of our country have risen during the same period of the decline of the family dinner. We need that connection. We need a place where we connect with one another, but are allowed to be messy. We're, we're allowed to be real. Rachel Naomi Raymond says, everyone is a story. When I was a child, people sat around the kitchen tables and told their stories. We don't do that so much anymore. Sitting around the table telling stories is not just a way of passing time. It's the way the wisdom gets passed along. As a family, we must make time to hear one another's stories and invite them into the larger story, God's redemption story. Among the Old Order Amish, 95% of the children follow the faith and tradition of their parents. Despite ultra-strict rules and a way of living that could not be more different than the American culture around them, the retention rate is incredible. Why? One of the key reasons 
is the emphasis the Amish place on the table. One writer says, Elders teach succeeding generations the songs and stories of the faith around the table. Family devotions take place at the table. The table is where the Amish tradition of Nakfoge, the following after Jesus, is introduced and instilled in the children. Even when an Amish teenager goes on Rumspringa, a period in which some adolescents leave the group to experience life outside the community, their place at the table is still set three times a day. Some Amish families even put food on their plate in anticipation of their running around kids returning to the table. Amish life, in short, revolves around the table, and it's rare for a young person to leave it behind. If, as Christians, we truly believe in the priesthood of all believers, we must conclude that the family is the first line of offense when it comes to passing on the Word of God. It's not Sunday school teachers, it's not the internet, and it's not the pastor. It's the parents. Theology is much better done at the table than in the classroom. God told Israel in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This all begins at the family table. Another story that the table tells is that of community. Jesus loved to eat with people. In fact, I can't find any place in the Gospels where we see Jesus eating alone. Someone has written, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. You see, Jesus recognized the power of a shared meal. Meals bring you close, you connect, you communicate. Tables are designed not like movie theater seats, but so that we face sitting one another. We can make eye contact. We can deepen community. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship in Jesus' day. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to fill their hungry bellies. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. In Jesus' day, one of the key concerns of the religious leaders was the kind of people they would share a meal with. They were overly preoccupied with their image and what others thought of them. It was unthinkable that you would even consider sharing a meal with someone who might tarnish that image. Jesus saw things differently. He saw the table as a place for mission. Listen to this story from Luke 5. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. 
And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus transformed the table from a place where only those who were like you, or only those who measured up, had a seat. He transformed it to a place where everyone had a seat. As the church of Jesus Christ, we must prioritize the table. We will not deepen community by looking at the backs of heads in pews. It will only take place as we face each other around the table. See, here's another thing about pews. It's really hard to have a conversation with the person behind you. It's even more challenging when the worship band is playing and the pastor is doing all the talking. You see, the table, it gives everyone a seat, everyone a voice. Here's the catch. The table means being vulnerable. I can sit in a pew with little or no risk of my heart being revealed. You can hide in a pew. You can't hide at the table. Coming to the table means taking risk. But boy, is it worth it. If we're going to experience community, the church must take back the table from the restaurant and hospitality from the Holiday Inn. Let's welcome one another to our tables. Let's open up our tables as a place where we can open up our hearts with one another. The table is a place of celebration. J.R.R. Tolkien once wrote, If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. I'll never forget the first Thanksgiving I celebrated with my wife's family in Southern California. She and I come from very different backgrounds, not only geographically, but in our temperament. My family is very laid back and much quieter, and after we devour a Thanksgiving feast, it's our tradition to retreat to the living room and watch the lions get their annual trouncing. Celebrating with my California family was very different. We traveled out to the desert to her grandparents' home and, and shared the meal. Uh, first time I'd ever done this in a large airplane hangar. The celebration got louder and louder as the meal went on. And despite her grandmother's protests, a food fight began by her uncle uh, unfolded. There was so much laughter, and, and afterwards, uh, with full bellies, they piled into jeeps and took rides out in the desert and uh, had more fun long into the evening. You see, these celebrations are a lot of fun, but all the festivities point to something greater than the celebration itself. In this case, we were observing a holiday, maybe a wedding, a graduation, football game, or simply the joy of being with friends. As believers, 
we can celebrate in this life, knowing that it points to something greater, something beyond reach here in this life. Jonathan Edwards has said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of Him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Celebrations around the dinner table point us to the glorious God we worship. When we celebrate, we are directed to the joy that is found only in Him. If we're looking carefully, we will see God in our celebrations. There's an interesting scripture in Exodus 24. God is about to confirm his covenant with Israel, and he calls the leaders to meet him on Mount Sinai. It says then, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Did you catch that? It was around the table that they saw God. What if we looked at the table as a place to see God? This seems to be the mindset of the Jewish people. The Jewish Talmud states, When the temple stood, the altar offered atonement. Now, one's table offers atonement. A writer says about this, In other words, during the period when the temple stood in Jerusalem, the primary means of divine worship involved offering sacrifices on the altar. Today, the primary means of divine worship involves having meals at home. Blessings before and after the meal, ritual foods, and family participation transform eating from a mundane activity into a religious experience. We should take some cues from the Jewish home. For the Christian, the table should become a place where the family and the community can experience God together, not simply celebrating His provision and blessing life events, but actively pointing one another to the lover of our souls, so that around the table, we might together see God. The table is also a place of healing, redemption, and restoration. At the end of a long summer day, weary from chasing bass in the lake by our house, endless flips on their trampoline, laboring behind the push mower and pedaling their bikes around our neighborhood. Our children will collapse at the dinner table and, like Esau, proclaim their near and certain death if they're unable to 
consume mass quantities of my wife's cooking. While their predicament may be overstated, the restorative power of food cannot. The human body must have nourishment. I love the word picture found in 1 Samuel 14:27 when Saul's son Jonathan, weary, faint, and hungry from a long, hard day of battle, found honey in the forest. The text says that when he ate it, his eyes became bright. That's what a good meal does. It restores and energizes and gives new life. While the table tells the story of healing and restoration, it does even more than that. It becomes a place of true spiritual healing and restoration. A beautiful picture of this in the scriptures occurs on the banks of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection of Jesus. It's recorded in John 21. After a futile night of fishing, the disciples encounter Jesus, who calls out to them from the shore. Living up to his impulsive nature, Peter dives into the water fully clothed in an effort to get to Jesus. As he emerges from the sea, dripping wet, he moves toward Jesus, who's made a fire on the beach. And at that moment, he smells a hauntingly familiar smell. The word that John, the storyteller, uses to describe the fire that Jesus made is a word that occurs in only one other place in Scripture, earlier in his own story. There the word is used of the fire where Peter and the others warmed themselves on the night of Jesus' arrest and trial. The charcoal fire of John 18.18 was the place of Peter's denial. For Peter, shame, well, it had a smell, that of burning charcoal. But the charcoal fire of John 21 is the place of Peter's restoration. Around the table, a, a different table to be sure, the simple invitation of Jesus to his friend is, Come and have breakfast. The table is the place where broken sinners, like Peter, like you, like me, find healing and forgiveness. May that be said of our tables. The table also tells the story of hope. N.T. Wright has written, When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. You know, it's interesting that Jesus did not tell his disciples to say this in remembrance of me or study this in remembrance of me. He said to do this, it's an act something physical. And of all the things he could have chosen, it was a meal. It was the sharing of the bread and the wine with one another that was to unite us around him in his saving work upon the cross. It's impossible to say everything about the significance and beauty of this meal. We are told it is a remembrance, a looking back at how Jesus graciously brought us into his covenant family. 1 Corinthians 10.16 also tells us it is a sharing in the body and blood of Christ, 
a mystical uniting with Christ in which we share in his death. But the table also points us to hope. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The table looks to the ache we have for God to renew all things. The meal reminds us that we await our coming King to right all the wrongs and to make all things new. In 1618, the Spanish artist Diego Velazquez depicted the Emmaus meal in a painting called Kitchen Made with the Supper of Emmaus. Tim Chester writes, Jesus and the disciples are portrayed in the top left corner, but the picture focuses all our attention on the maid The astonished look on her face as she overhears their conversation suggests she's realized that a previously dead man has just eaten her food. The meal is hinted at, but it's all washed and tidied away. The central item is a piece of rag, part of Jesus' grave clothes. The new world has collided with the old. Sometime after it was finished, the painting was altered by its new owner. The Emmaus scene was covered over entirely, and a few inches were cut from the left-hand margin, so that even in the restored version, one of the disciples is missing. The original version was only rediscovered in 1933, when the painting was cleaned. In the altered painting, the resurrected Christ had been edited out of the picture The Bible story was painted over. Hope had been removed. Our culture has removed the transcendent, the divine, the eschatological. What we're left with is the washing up. We're left with the rags. Yet this is where we belong, at the sink with rags. In a broken world, Christ's resurrection is the promise of a new world. But we have not yet received resurrection bodies, and our world has not yet been renewed. It remains under the sign of the cross. We live in a godless and a God-forsaken world, a world still under God's curse. As Christians, we have resurrection life, but we have it so that we might live the way of the cross. We live between the cross and the resurrection between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The table captures the anticipation of Easter Sunday, our reunion with the lover of our souls. The table tells the story of hope. Tim Chester writes that in 1602, Italian artist Caravaggio also painted the meal at Emmaus. His portrayal of Christ is unusual for his time in that Christ is beardless, perhaps representing the disciples' failure initially to recognize him. The picture captures the dramatic moment of recognition. One man is in the act of pushing his chair away in astonishment. But there's also a sense in which He's pushing the chair out toward us. It's as if he's creating space for us to move into the picture. 
Jesus' arms are extended, as if in blessing, but in fact, inviting us forward. As if that weren't enough, a basket of fruit is teetering on the edge of the table, demanding that we leap into the picture to catch it. Caravaggio is trying to lure us into the scene as active participants. An encounter with Christ is a call to action, to involvement, to participation, to join him at the table. And so the table tells the story. It has its own story. It's the place to hear the stories of others. And it's the perfect place to welcome others into God's story. But what exactly does the table have to do with the church? What is all that we've been saying have to do with God's people fulfilling the Great Commission? Let me ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you think of church? Do you think of pews, steeples, uh, pianos and organs, a church choir, maybe long, boring sermons? Uh, I'm standing here today in, in the church sanctuary uh, of the church I pastor. It's Sunday, and this room has been empty all day. Because of the virus, we're not able to meet here. But does that mean we didn't have church today? What if I were to tell you that the church is not a building? It's not a high production worship service or events or flashy programs. It's not. The church is not a building. It's a people. It's God's people, wherever they gather. And if we're serious about reaching our neighbors and our neighborhoods, our communities, our cities, our counties, if we're serious about reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's time we get outside of the walls of our church buildings and in the doors of our homes and sit down at our tables. You see, we can have all of the tools and strategies and programs and buildings that we want. But here's how Luke describes Jesus' ministry strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. <laughs> you see, if we're going to reach hearts, truly reach hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to reach people the way that Jesus reached people. We need to sit down with them and listen to their story and invite them into God's story. And there's no better place to do that than at the table.